Psst. Neha, what's the tea? You mean the novelty? Welcome to The Novelty, a podcast dedicated to books. Not just the Western male-centric books from the high school lit class, we also read books by women, people of color, and from around the world. We'll dive into literary technique and character analysis. But don't worry, we aren't afraid to spill the tea and give our unfiltered opinions. Together, we'll redefine the classics. Will today's pick stand the test of time? Keep listening to find out. Before we get into the episode, we'd like to include a trigger warning. We'll be talking about themes of violence and suicide in this episode, so if that's not for you, you can skip those parts or this episode as a whole, and we'll see you next time. Hi. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you? How is life being married? All I'm going to say is that it's been a crazy couple months, and I'm just really glad to be back. Yeah, I bet. A lot of traveling. But your honeymoon looked amazing and very on theme. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, I went to Japan for my honeymoon, which is super apt because today we are going to be talking about Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. And even though the book is about people of Korean ethnicity and Min Jin Lee is of Korean descent, a lot of the book is set in Japan. Yeah. All right. Do you have a summary for us? So Pachinko is a long book, and it mainly follows one character, Sunja, throughout her life. And the story goes from the early 20th century and spans almost 80 years in her life and the life of her family members and other people around her. And it starts out with her in a small village in what is now North Korea, but at the time was just one Korea. And she lives with her mother in a boarding house, and she's the star child of her father who is disabled. And that kind of sets up her life to go forward. She gets boarders in this house with her mom, and then one day she meets this man that she starts to have feelings for, and she makes a series of decisions, and her family makes a series of decisions that ultimately change and dictate the rest of their lives. So that's as much as I can say without getting into spoilers, because I feel like the spoilers start pretty early. So for those who have read the book, but it's been a while, we'll do a bit of a deeper summary now as we go through the characters. So as I mentioned, Sunja's the main character. But the story actually starts with her parents, Huni and Yangjin. Huni is a fisherman's son, and everyone is concerned that he may not be able to get a wife because he has a twisted foot. And in normal circumstances, his parents probably wouldn't be able to find a wife for him. But because of the recent invasion by Japan. A lot of the people in the area are newly thrown into poverty. There's scarcer resources. And so Yangjin is married to Huni. And then Sunja's their daughter, and she quickly meets Kohansu, who is the love interest and kind of a driving force throughout the novel. She meets him spoiler, gets pregnant. He has a wife already. So one of the traveling boarders who's staying with her and her mother, Isak, he offers to marry Sunja. And he is kind of sick. He has consumption. So they get married and they go to Japan, which is where they meet the rest of his family. 
Yeah. I did want to add that when Kohan Su finds out that Sunja is pregnant, he kind of offers her like an out. He's like, yeah, I have a wife and kids in Japan, but I can buy a house for you. I can take care of you. I just can't live with you and be your husband. And Sunja's like, uh, no, I'm not agreeing to that. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of when Isaac steps in. Yes, exactly. And when she gets to Japan, she meets Isaac's brother, Yoseb, and his wife, Kyunghee. And they are kind of their family for the next couple mm-hmm. parts of the book. They live together. They didn't have children. But Sunja's son, whose father is actually Kohansu, but Isak becomes a father to him, is Noah. And then they have a second son who is Mozasu. These are kind of the big main characters that we follow throughout the book. There are some other characters like Kim Chang-ho. Kim Chang-ho, he is um, the owner of a restaurant that Sunja and Kyung-hee work at. And he is kind of a connection between Kohansu and Sunja. And then later, Mozasu gets married to Yumi and they have a son named Solomon. Yeah, this book has so many characters because it spans so many years. It's like this married person marries this person, this person has a kid with this person, this person meets this person randomly. But I think those are like the main characters. Yeah. What theme did you pick? I picked virtue. And the reason I picked it was there's a line pretty early in the book in the first chapter. First of all, I wanted to talk about the first chapter because I read the first chapter, which is about Huni's parents and then Huni and Sunja and that whole chapter in and of itself could be a short story. Mm-hmm. Like the impact of the ending, I was like, wow, this is going to be something worth t- noticing her writing yeah. and the whole book. But in that first chapter, there's a line about some of the borders are talking, I think, and they're talking about marriage and how it's hard to find grooms for the daughters. And there's a line that says, since it was better for virgins to marry anyone than to scrounge for food when men and women were hungry and virtue was expensive. And that line really stood out to me, virtue was expensive, about how virtue, first of all, how virtue is treated differently in men and women. Second of all, how it's treated differently according to wealth and social class. So I did a bit of a deep dive into that term and concept in general, but I'll hold off and tell me what theme you picked first. I picked a pretty obvious theme, I think. I picked pride. Hmm. Because I feel like every character showed pride in some way or the other. And I think sometimes pride can have negative connotations. Like it can be clubbed together with egotism or like arrogance. But I think also sometimes pride can be a good thing, which I think we see a lot in the book in terms of having pride with your children. And I think the first time I saw pride in the book was when Sunja first finds out that she's pregnant and Kohansu is doing the whole like, oh, I can take care of you kind of thing. She has enough pride in herself to say no to the situation and realize that she deserves more than that. And then she just decides that she's going to raise the baby by herself before she even realizes that Isaac is going to step in and help out. But I think the character that I saw pride in the most is Yosib, but I want to save that discussion for later. <laughs> yeah, we can, I guess, go through some of our reactions to the book and then we'll get to everything kind of in chronologic order because so much happens and there's so many years that it spans. Yeah. 
So the book is divided into three different parts. The first part, I think, is from 1910 to 1933, which is when Japan first annexed Korea. And I think this is the part of the book that kind of describes the start of the discrimination and struggle of Koreans in Japan. It's not that prevalent in the first part of the book, I think. It, the first part kind of describes mostly Yungji and Sunja having difficulties paying for resources to keep up with the board house that they own. And the war and everything that comes with it is kind of gearing up and only beginning in this first part of the book. But what did you think of this first part? I really liked the first part. Even the first line. It's like I pay attention to opening lines and endings of stories. And the first line is, history has failed us, but no matter. And it's an interesting first line because that is the entire matter. That history has failed them and that's what happens throughout the story. It reminded me of the first line of Pride and Prejudice, which is clearly irony and the opposite of what it means. And in that book, it's more kind of setting up wit and the humor of the book. But in this book, the line is similar in that it's completely the opposite of what it actually the thing actually is but then it's setting it up to be a little bit more cruel and the irony of the world and the universe not necessarily characters or social situations and then when we first meet Sunja I thought her character was really interesting to follow she's kind of this quiet girl and then she meets Kohansu and I wasn't sure how to feel about their relationship it's the way it's described It wasn't that he was harassing her, but it didn't feel totally like this was what she wanted 100%. Yeah. I think in hindsight, when I look back at those like first chapters of Kohansu, I realized how manipulative he was being towards her. But when I was actually reading the book, I felt like, okay, maybe sometimes he was being a little pushy and assertive towards her. But I don't know. Sometimes people like that and want their partner to kind of put themselves out there but I was surprised because it didn't he didn't seem like Sunja's type like we mentioned Uh Sunja is more of like quiet and dutiful young woman she's not really the type to rebel and like pick the quote-unquote bad boy that Hansu is but I think Hansu kind of forces himself into her life and took advantage of how like young and innocent she was yeah i think he was like she was really young when this happened i think she was like 15 Mm -hmm. or something i i think she really truly believed that he loved her and thought this was how relationships work and just kind of naively wanted hansu to be her husband and have a family together but then she realizes this isn't the life that she really wanted and that this wasn't really how things are supposed to be. Yeah. And I wonder if he had courted her differently, she would have felt differently about his proposition of her being his mistress, or if that was something internal that she would never want. Because even though he's pretty respectful of her when he's courting her, the scene where they go into the forest and they're like together and they have sex for the first time, that was an uncomfortable scene. It felt like, okay, she wasn't protesting or necessarily it wasn't violent, but you got the sense that she wasn't 100% on board or she didn't really know what was happening. And from there on, it felt like maybe she subconsciously started to realize that he was manipulative. And then when he tells her outright, she realizes that's the kind of person he is and that's not 
something that she wants. Yeah. I also think, big spoiler here, Hansu is a Yakuza, so he's just not a good guy just by profession. And so throughout the book, you kind of see all the red flags, like his aggressiveness and violence towards other people. But in those first couple moments with Sunja, you don't see that part of him yet. But once she realizes that the kind of guy that he is, she doesn't think twice about ditching him. She's like, nope, I'm out. Yeah. But throughout the book, Hansu never stops loving Sunja. I mean, maybe it's because he loves the son that she gave him. But it always felt a little bit strange because Hansu seemed like the type of guy to just kind of not care and just move on. The sense I got from how he felt towards Sunja was that it wasn't a very pure love. Like, yes, he was looking out for her, but a lot of it was that he was looking out for Noah, who's his only son, with his actual Japanese wife. He only had daughters. And the whole time, it just felt like he was trying to control her in a way. And classics reference number two, I have so many for this book, but I got Jane Eyre vibes from their relationship. Like, Sunja being kind of quietly determined, and Hansu felt like a Rochester character to me, where if you read it on the surface, maybe it's a little romantic, but as soon as you understand the subtext and the depth of the relationship, you understand how cruel and manipulative he can be, just like Rochester was. The difference in this book being that there's no equalizing of the power structure because in Jane Eyre when he's blinded and he loses his leg and his house burns down that puts him and Jane on the same level in this book I mean yes they grow old and towards the end spoiler he finds out he has cancer but there's nothing that really equalizes the power and he is always the controlling force maybe it's just that Kohansu liked the chase because Sundar mm-hmm. never said yes or gave in to what he wanted so I think maybe he felt like maybe that Sunja was the one that got away. Um, did you talk about it at some point too, though? After Kohansu gets cancer, he's like waiting in the car for something or someone. And he talks about how he's yearning for her and says that he's never had a love like that. And he always thinks about that day in the forest. But like, I don't, I don't know what that really means. I think for me, it seemed like uh-huh. he really loved her. But I think in reality, he was just using her. Yeah, I think he... Clearly, with his profession and how he's gotten to be such a powerful and wealthy person in life, he knows how to manipulate and charm people. And I think it's that same side of him that he shows when he's with Sunja, that maybe he doesn't with Noah. I think Noah, he really is concerned about and loves as his son. But with Sunja, it's complicated. Yeah, complicated is an understatement. (laughs) So then she meets... Isak, and he is really nice to her and her mother. He's sick. He has consumption, which is tuberculosis, but he offers to marry her and take her back. And what was your impression of his character? I mean, he, to me, represented faith, but I wonder if there's more than just that. Like, I don't, is that a simplified reading to be like, okay, he's going to do things that are just always morally good? Yeah. For Isak, always felt like he was the angel in the story he was always kind and giving and willing to sacrifice but his character was also very fleeting in the book like he takes Sunja to Osaka after marrying her and they move to Isak's brother's place but shortly after that he is imprisoned the reason he's imprisoned is because he was praying in a church 
So they are Christian. Yeah, during the time that Japan annexed Korea, they were very afraid and threatened by people who practiced other faiths. Those people, I think, were always the first to be suspected or, like, investigated. Yeah, I think it's, like, along the same lines of religious persecution that people mm-hmm. face in a lot of colonial and expansionist empires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So something happens at the church that Isaac works at, which is at of no fault of his, and he gets imprisoned for three years. Um, I think we mentioned he was generally like a very sickly person. So when he gets released, he is in a really bad state and he dies shortly after. So in that sense, he doesn't have like that big of a presence in the book. Like his character only lasts like maybe 100 pages. But obviously what he did for Sunja and the sacrifices he made for others left a very big impact. Yeah, he plays kind of the religious martyr role. Like, he's just only good, he does things that are moral, and then he's persecuted for his faith, and then he dies. I picture it like Hansu is the devil on Sinja's shoulder, and Isaac is the angel on her shoulder, and she has a son with both of them. Yeah, and she kind of listens to neither of them, but they're just both always present in her mind as influences. And maybe this is a good time for me to talk a little bit more about the theme I picked, Virtue. Because I saw it to different extents and different characters, and I wanted to look at the definition and the word roots, and I promise this is going somewhere, so don't turn it off just because you hear me quoting definitions from the dictionary. So the definitions, there's like five or six, and they include conformity to a standard of right or a particular moral excellence. The second one is a beneficial quality or power of a thing. The third one is manly strength or courage and valor. The fourth is a commendable quality or trait. And then there's capacity to act. And the sixth one is chastity, especially in a woman. And the origin of the word comes from ver or vir, which is a Greek root for man. Like not a person, but specifically male. And at the time, virtue or the root was very tied to courage or bravery on the battlefield and these very typical kind of Greek masculine traits. And it wasn't even applied to women. There was a different word in ancient Greek and Latin that referred to women's purity or chastity. And then over time, with the advent of different religions, especially Christianity, the virtues are an order of angels And that, I'm sure there were tons of other influences, but that is one of the reasons that virtue then got tied to virginity and feminine chastity. And then I read this interesting article about how in revolutionary America, there was a more masculine definition of virtue as kind of the public virtue of your duty to your community and to the Republican cause versus feminine virtue was a more private thing. So then it made me think that virtue had kind of like a public side and a private side. And I thought that ref- mapped really well onto the men and the women in the book because Isaac's virtue is how he is so tied to his faith and behaves in a way that is morally good and that others can respect. But Sinja's virtue is very internal. Like she has her own internal moral compass that others might judge or not believe in. What about Hansu? I don't know. Do you think he's virtuous? I think he thinks he has virtue because 
for example, there's one part where there are these boys that are harassing Sunja and mm-hmm. he saves her from them. And I think he's always very protective of her and always looking out for her. But I guess the difference is that he's not doing it to be virtuous or good. He's doing it for selfish reasons. Yeah. It's very performative. But, yeah. But Isak yeah. Is, was not, his virtue was not performative. Mm-hmm. He was genuinely very selfless. Yeah. That's true. And so maybe then Hansu's quote-unquote virtue is more tied to the original word where he does all of these kind of macho actions and outwardly behaves this way because it's expected, but he doesn't have that internal compass. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the first part of the book is where Isaac dies. And the second part starts in 1939. And these were the years leading up to World War II. There was a lot of political unrest and like fear in the people that lived in Japan and Korea. In this second part of the book, all the characters are kind of doing their own thing. Noah and Masasu are kids and they're going to school and Sunja is working really hard to sell kimchi. Noah and Masasu are both bullied in school because they're of Korean descent. And Noah takes the bullying as a way to kind of show people that he can be better than them and becomes an overachiever. But Mozasu is kind of the opposite. He was kind of like, I don't care what everyone thinks and gets into fights with people that try to bully him. And eventually he drops out of school. I actually really enjoyed the contrasts of their personalities and perspective of who their fathers were. What did you think about it? I liked both their characters. I remember thinking that Noah, I saw a lot of Isak and Sunja in him, but I didn't really see Hansu in him as much. And then Mozasu, I felt, was maybe more like Hansu on the surface because he was a little bit more violent and not really sticking to rules. But then later when Noah finds out about Hansu, and he confronts Sunja, he was so mean to her. And I was like, wow, okay, that's Hansu. <laughs> See, like, okay, I'm going to give the listeners more perspective on Noah before I say what I want to say. So Noah, throughout the second part of the book, like, works his butt off at school. It's not easy to be a Korean in Japan at this time. And he has this thing in his head that's driving and motivating him that he wants to go to university and be the first in his family to go to college and he studies really hard and he fails his first couple entrance exams but he just keeps trying yeah and he doesn't he doesn't care but he does internalize it because that's kind of a driving force for him to prove himself exactly but like at the same time like he obviously really enjoys reading and studying throughout this book and he decides to do his undergrad i think in literature which i thought was an interesting choice because you would assume that he that a part of his driving force like you mentioned would be wealth and i just assumed that he was going to be studying something that would be like a high paying profession yeah i thought that him picking literature in college was just an indulgence of the author because then she gets to talk about like all these classic writers that maybe she likes but i didn't it didn't exactly fit with Noah's character. I would have thought he would do something more mainstream or something that maybe a lot of people are doing in Japan at the time. Yeah. But anyway, so the book goes into Noah's perspective a few times in the second part of the book. 
And the feeling that I got the most during these parts was desperation. Like he just really wanted to be successful. And he was teaching Mazasu on the side because he wants his brother to be successful too. And it's just like the definition of the perfect studious son, I guess. But I'm explaining all this because as soon as he finds out who his real father is, who is Hansu, all of that goes away in like a second, like in a snap instant. Uh The Noah that we were reading about this whole time goes away. And that shift in his character was really surprising to me. I was also a little confused by it. I think it could have sent him into a crisis where he's doing all this work, he really wants to fit in, and all of a sudden he finds out that actually his father is this irreputable person. But why did he end up in a pachinko parlor? I felt like, because when Mozasu joins a pachinko parlor, that's the first time that concept is introduced, which is the title of the book. And with Mozasu, there was development where it made sense for him to do that. He started working there after school, then he kind of dropped out of school, he got better at it, and that makes sense. He has more street smarts than book smarts. But I didn't understand why Noah, like, it felt like that saying, like, cutting off your nose to spite your face, like, he just, he's like, oh, I guess I'm bad blood, so I'm gonna go do the most base thing I can think of. Yeah, and he kind of throws himself in that character as well, like, He's like, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this apartment or to go to school anymore or any of this potential success. And he cuts off his whole family. And I was a little frustrated with his decisions at this point because I kind of wish that he had just stopped to think about the sacrifices that his mom, aunt, uncle, and brother, and a lot of people made for him to get to where he was. And he kind of just put everything at the fault of his mother and the choices that she made and he threw away all of that and hid from his family for like seven years or something like that before Hansu finds him again and his whole value system just changed in a second and I just had a hard time understanding that especially because like you said the whole book we learned that Noah is this really good diligent child and he loves his family and he does what is dutiful and good it would have made more sense if he had sat down, tried to understand, talked to Sinja or something. But the snap 180, I agree, it felt abrupt and not in character. Yeah. And obviously, it's like a, a huge shock to like learn that news after you've grown so much thinking something else. But yeah. And it wasn't her fault. She was 15. She was seduced by this older man who kind of forced himself into her life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think I was, I was just frustrated with his anger with Sunja for assuming that she was at fault or a bad person. But, like, she also kept this big secret from him and probably had the opportunity to tell him the truth, but decided not to. So he probably felt betrayed. And I think by that time, she had decided Isak is his mm-hmm. father. Yeah. I just, it just didn't make sense to me. I was like, okay, why Pachinko? So that it fits with the title and that everyone in the family ends up in this business? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I just, I wish that he wasn't in this like self-destructive mode and he wanted to use his knowledge and patience and 
opportunity to maybe instead like become a tutor or a teacher or something like maybe a little bit more productive. But I think the point of it was to show like how prevalent these pachinko parlors were and how it was one of the only opportunities that Koreans in Japan had and that was his only option at the time. But I liked, for the most part, I liked Mozasu's character development and his story. I don't know, I think she was maybe trying to reverse this notion that like Pachinko is bad and and if on the face of it, Mozasu's like the bad kid, quote unquote, but he grows up to be probably a lot more virtuous than Noah ended up behaving. And he raises a family, he stays with his mom and Kyunghee, and then Yang Jin, who ends up with them after the bombings. So I I liked his character development and I like that story. Mm-hmm. I think another big part of part two of the book was the end of World War Two. At some point at this part, Hantu reveals himself to Sunja as someone who has been, like, secretly helping her since she arrived in Osaka. And he warns her to get out of Osaka right now because he was warned of bombings in major cities. Uh-huh. And he sends Sunja and the family to the countryside where they work for years. And at the same time, Yosef gets sent to Nagasaki to work in a factory. Um, he comes back from Nagasaki after the bombings, um, permanently injured and crippled. And he requires a lot of medical care and medicines, which are scarce and expensive. At this point, like, Yosa obviously feels like a burden to the family. And I just found it so, like, the whole time that Yosib and Sunja and Kyungi live in Osaka... He has a very traditional outlook and doesn't want the woman to work. He refuses to let Sunja and Kyunggi get a job. He wants to be the main breadwinner, which I thought was interesting because they live in a war-stricken country, which is already hard. And then they're Koreans living in Japan, which is even more difficult. Yosef and Kyunggi don't have children, but they take in Sunja's kids and Sunja knows that there's like a burden to them because of the kids and requiring more food and education. And Yosef is actually really offended when Sunja decides to start her own kimchi business because, which I'm like, isn't it obvious that one person can't take up a family of five, especially during these difficult times? Uh-huh. And even through this, he doesn't really allow Kingi to help out much, though she does do her best. And I just thought it was so sad that Kingi and Yosef weren't able to have an honest conversation to be like, yeah, we really need uh-huh. this money. Let me take on these tasks to help out. Kingi was always kind of afraid of Yosef about like finances. And I just thought it was sad to see them not being able to communicate about it. Yeah, I guess part of it was the time and context that it was in. But I agree that he was like overly traditional and not really willing to accept the reality of what was happening. I mean, we know that historically war times are when a lot of women have entered the workforce where they previously haven't been allowed. So for him to be so, like, he's a character, to go back to your theme, where the pride was detrimental, right? To be so prideful that you can't see that 
doing this thing that you think will hurt your pride is going to actually be beneficial for the family. Like you're just and, harming everyone. And then when he, when Yosip comes back from Nagasaki, he becomes very dependent on the woman in the family. And thank goodness Sunja had taken things into her own hands before that because she'd already established a reliable income at that point versus her having to start from scratch at a low point already would have been really hard. Yeah, it would have been really hard. So we talked about part two and then part three happens. The shift is when Noah finds out about who his father is. And then part three I don't know if it really does or if it was just my impression, but it spans a longer time and there are other characters who come up because now Noah and Mosasu are older, they have love interests, they have kids. So then by the end of the book, Sunja is in her 70s or 80s. At that point, she has met Hansu a couple times and one of the first things that, that happens in part three is that after all these years... Kohansu finds Noah and he tells Sunja that he's found him and that he could take her to him. So they go, they kind of watch him for a little bit. And then Sunja wants to go say hi and see him. And Hansu says that she shouldn't, but she does anyways. And when they were having that conversation, he very quickly says like, okay, I'll come visit you. Like, I'll write to you. And when he was saying that, I knew something was wrong. I was like, this is not... Yeah, I was like, I don't know what's going to happen, but this is, like, really bad sign. And then the next chapter, we find out that he killed himself. And in retrospect, I was like, we should have known, because two chapters before, we find out the story. Mozasu's friend, Haruki, is a police inspector, and he goes and talks to this family who's a Korean family whose son had jumped off a building because he was getting bullied so badly by the Japanese kids in school. And that was actually what inspired Minjin Lee to write this book. She heard this story um, in a lecture that she was attending about the Zainichi, which is kind of a derogatory term used for Koreans living in Japan. So she included that story in the book. And then that was right before Sunja has this conversation with Noah. I was like, wow, she literally set it up for us. And I, maybe that is why I felt the sense of foreboding, but I didn't know exactly what. And then at the end of the chapter, that's just how it ends that he had shot himself. I don't know. Maybe I'm just super naive, but I saw that and I felt like Noah was waiting for this to happen. I think realistically, he knew that he couldn't hide away forever, mm-hmm. but I thought he would just run away again or maybe. They would just have like a huge fight. So when basically he doesn't wait a second, Sunja leaves his office after finding him and he shoots himself immediately after she leaves, mm-hmm. which makes me think that this was always his plan. But it's just so frustrating for me to see a character that would want to kill himself themselves over their past instead of live for their future because Noah had a wife, he had kids and just so yeah. much going going for him. I think he, throughout the story, is so caught up and disturbed by his past. Like, more than Mozasu, he really wants to fit in. Mozasu doesn't care. He's like, yeah, I'm Korean. They say bad things about me, whatever. But Noah internalizes it the whole time. And then, even though it didn't completely make sense when he found out that Hansu was his father, he was like, I just need to rid myself of this lifestyle or this knowledge and this history of mine. 
And then he suppresses it to try and live a new life. And I think when Sunja found him, he was like, okay, I'm never going to be able to escape the reality of who I am. And he just couldn't deal with it. But I agree that we didn't get, we didn't really get any of that development or that internal struggle. So then to find out when he killed himself, it seems very sudden and out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. I think I mentioned this in our half of the Yellow Sun episode, but I, I said that I always try to see myself in a character and like put myself in their shoes. And with Noah, I found that almost impossible. Like something was just really off with him in this part of the book. Yeah. I mean, I think he was depressed. I think the past and everything that happened to him, he was just chronically depressed. I mean, people who have depression and who are sick from it, I mean, yes, people do hold off from harming themselves or others when they have family that they're close to. That is like a protective factor. But people do it when they're really ill. So I think he just was really ill and we didn't get a lot of it in the book. So then it felt like it came out, like it just was random because we didn't get that backstory and development. So then for him to kill himself, if we don't see how much he's really struggling and we just get the facts of it, it feels like a throwaway decision. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that I wish was a little different about the book is the first two parts feel very tight and cohesive in the characters that we follow and what's happening with them. And then as the story goes on, we drift away from that and we hear about other characters. And I just found myself wishing I could hear more about Sunja and Noah and Mozasu. And I didn't really care about all these like tertiary characters. So I think that also was part of the disconnect. Yeah, I agree. There are characters that I think that we didn't need the extra insight into. Like you mentioned Haruki, who is Mazasu's best friend in school and becomes an investigator later. There were a lot of chapters about him and his wife, and I think my whole experience of the book would have been the exact same if that part didn't exist. Mm-hmm. I liked Haruki's development earlier on when he was friends with Mozasu and then he becomes a police officer. But I agree, later on, I didn't need all those extra chapters. Yeah, and I wanted to read a quote by Min Jin Lee that's related to this. She says, In realistic fiction, especially in book-linked work, characters cannot exist alone, and certainly they are never in a vacuum. Naturally, the interplay of characters in setting and time affects both plot and characterization. There are major plot lines, but minor plot lines should offer critical support to the story. If history so often fails to represent all of us, it is not because historians are not interested, but because historians often lack the primary documents of so-called minor characters in history. Interestingly, women have become, at best, the minor characters in history. Although we represent half the human race, because we have left so few primary documents in nearly all cultures and civilization. Also, poor and middle-class men of all races and cultures, although their lives were so often tragically sacrificed in war and labor, are often minor characters in history, because they too did not leave sufficient written evidence of their lives. So I think based off that, she kind of attempted to do this. And that was the reason why she had all these minor plot lines and minor characters in the story. Yeah, so I like I agree with her intention. I just I love books that are really long with lots of characters and kind of follow families and different people over time, but there has to be like this is my personal view. There has to be a purpose in a novel, right? We're not reading a history book or a historical text or 
recounting of something that happened, reading a novel, and within the structure of that novel, there has to be a purpose to including a character or not including them and how much role they play in the story. And there are books like Middlemarch and tons of others where there's lots of characters in the community or in the story that get followed over time, but there is a purpose to each of them being included, and they fit well into the story where you don't feel like, why did I need to know about this person? Like, towards the end... Mozasu's girlfriend's daughter, Hana. I didn't understand. I was like, I don't really know what she's trying to say with these characters. At one point, Hana is in the hospital and she has AIDS. And I didn't get it. I was like, are you trying to condemn her for being sexually promiscuous? Or is this kind of how the good die young? Like, what is the purpose of this? What I understood from those chapters was from, like, after World War II, prostitution is really big in japan like you mentioned women needed to work and unfortunately this was like a quote unquote easy job for them to get into and i think maybe hana was just wrongly influenced by her mom's promiscuous nature which is what made her get into that industry but i think minjin lee maybe included the story just because she wanted to include the fact that young women were sometimes forced in this industry or trafficked, or felt like they had no choice after World War II. But she has a really sad ending, and maybe that was to also contrast Solomon's character as well, because at this point in the novel, Mozasu is super successful and extremely loaded, and Solomon lives a very luxurious life. He runs around with all these rich people, his birthday had all these like superstars and celebrities, and he goes to... New York, I think, for college. But, yeah, but just for a chapter. Like, he's in New York for five minutes, and then he's back in Japan. (laughs) Yeah, and then when he comes back to Japan, he gets fired from his job, and he decides that the next thing to do is to join the pachinko business. Yeah, he's rich. He has a lot of power, like, relatively more power now than his parents did. Like, he could have, he has a degree. He could move to America. Yeah, he could do anything. The last, like, 150 pages to me felt like I almost was reading a different book. Like, the first two parts were really good. I enjoyed them a lot. And then as it went further, I felt like it had lost the plot. And it wasn't, to me, an issue with the length. Like, I honestly would have been happy to read more chapters about Mozasu and Sunja. It just became so diffuse disintegrating i don't really i i don't know i didn't i still am like struggling with how to feel about the book or because it sucks when a book that you're enjoying the ending is not something that you're happy with because then it changes how you see the whole rest of it yeah for me it wasn't just the ending i just didn't like where things were going i think yeah yeah and in the first two parts of the book i really like how the history part was like very intertwined in the story but in the third part after world war ii ends like that's not where the history part ended either yeah that's when the korea war happens that's when like south korea and north korea become so polarized yeah i really was really hoping to hear more about the korean war i think you do kind of hear a little bit when kim decides he wants to move back to Korea and Hansu tells him no don't do it because he would be going back to what is now North Korea and he was mm-hmm. warning him that he wasn't safe but that was kind of it I think for the history part 
it kind of makes sense to me because in the first two parts, they're very poor and their situation, like their social situation is really disadvantageous and politics and wars and those kinds of things affect you more when you don't have resources. And I think to me, that makes sense where later on they're a little more wealthy and they have this position in society where things could be going on around them, but it's not really going to affect their day-to-day life the way it did when they were a lot more poor. Yeah, I guess that makes sense because in part three, they're extremely well off. So these things wouldn't necessarily be a problem in their lives anymore. Mm -hmm. But I had a random question for you. Mm -hmm. There's so many relationships and love stories that happened in this book. Which one was your favorite? I don't think I have a favorite couple. I feel like none of the relationships seemed that great to me. (laughs) But I think Kyunghee was my favorite character. She welcomes Sinja so warmly and she takes care of the boys and she treats her like a sister. They never even ask. Like Clearly they know that something morally questionable has happened because she is already pregnant and they don't know like they suspect Isak's not the father but they don't ask they don't assume anything like she just treats her like a sister and yeah. is so kind the whole book yeah she's so wholesome i wish we got more of her i feel like after yosef comes back from nagasaki mm-hmm. we don't get a lot of her perspective anymore in the book yeah except oh we never talked about how kim Changho proposes to her and wants to marry her and take her back to Korea. Yeah. And she's like, no. Yeah. I mean, the way that Kim also proposes this idea to her is like when Yosef is still on his deathbed and he's still alive. And I feel like that's not the way you propose. You're not like, oh, yeah. your husband's about to die. Do you want to marry me? So it, the rejection of that made sense. Yeah. Like, I wasn't like, oh, I wish she said yes and she went with him. Yeah. Well, he leaves. And then in my head, I was like, he's going to die. Like, he's going back to North Korea, and no one really knows what's happening there, so. Yeah, I mean, he. I think he does mention before he leaves that he'll send a letter after he come, after he reaches, but he never does, so I think it's safe to assume that he probably doesn't make it. But my favorite relationship was Mozasu and Yumi. I thought they were super cute, and even when Mozasu was, like, courting her, it just felt like so like I felt so giddy and like happy for them. But that relationship also doesn't last very long because Yumi dies, I think, two years after they have Solomon. Yeah, it seemed like the only relationship that they really could have been partners instead of this weird power dynamic that's infused in all of the other couples. My favorite character, I think, in the whole book was Mozasu. I think he's one of the only characters that really stays true to himself the yeah. whole book. He puts in, like, good, honest work into a profession that that would be really hard to do for. And he always tries to make his son happy. And even after his wife dies, I think he's a good father to Solomon, too. Which is unfortunate because he is Isak's son and Noah's Hansu's son. And to me, it's like, well, does it say that you can't escape your blood? Like, your parents' fate? I don't know. I mean, you can say that blood doesn't matter, but clearly to Noah, it did. Okay, so do you have a passage for us? Yes. At this part of the book, it's right when Kyungi and Sunja are starting their kimchi business. 
and they're getting a groove of how to handle it with the two sons. You have to eat, Sunja. You're nursing, and that's not easy, right? You have to drink lots of water and milk. Kungi turned around so Sunja could tuck Muzasa to the sling on Kungi's back. Kungi secured the baby tightly around her torso. I'll go home and wait for Noah and make dinner. You come home soon, okay? We're a good team. Muzasa's small head rested between Kungi's thin shoulder blades and Sunja watched them walk away. When they were out of earshot, Sunja cried out, Kimji, delicious kimji. This sound, the sound of her own voice, felt familiar, not because it was her own voice, but because it reminded her of all the times she'd gone to the market as a girl, first with her father, later by herself as a young woman, then as a lover, yearning for the gaze of her beloved. The chorus of women hawking had always been with her, and now she'd joined them. Kimji, kimji. She tried to sound cheerful, because back home, she'd always frequented the nicest ujamas. When the passerby glanced in her direction, she bowed and smiled at them. Oshi, Oshi. The pig butcher looked up from his counter and smiled at her proudly. That evening, Sunja did not go home until she saw the bottom of the kimchi jar. I'm crying. Poor Sunja. It's so sad. I know. She just, like, goes through so much in this book. Oh, you're actually crying. <laughs> yeah. Because Sunja is not the type of person to be, like, loud and put herself out there. And she's really quiet and reserved. And so you know when she's, like, yelling out, kimchi, kimchi. She's not doing it because she wants to. She's doing it for her kids. And then she talks about her dad. And this paragraph is just so loaded. Mm-hmm. She's such a good writer, too. I feel like we didn't even talk about Min Jin Lee and her writing or like her, how she got inspired about this book. But yeah, also I have notes that we didn't even get to. So I feel like we're going to have to do a part two because this is already quite a long episode. Yeah. And and this book is so long too that it's, it's not going to be possible to fit this all into one episode for sure. But I think we can still filter the chai. Do you want to go first? Yeah. So I gave it a 7 on 10. I, like I mentioned earlier, I didn't really enjoy the third part as much as the first two parts. That's the reason why I didn't get higher than a 7. But the first parts of the book, like we talked about, I really, really did like. I I loved the first two parts. Like, I was tearing through the pages. I was like, I want to reread this so I can pick up on all the stuff that I missed the first time. And I just felt like I could see myself going back to it the same way that I go back to like a Bronte or something. Like it had that kind of emotional depth. I think that even though I wasn't as big of a fan of the last part compared to the first two parts, it is important to take that part in context with the rest of the story and the generational impact that the first two parts had on all the characters in the third part. So I would say that overall, I would still give this book an eight. I think it was really well written and covers an important topic. What about the timelessness aspect of the book? You answer first. (laughs) I said yes. I really liked how the history part of the book was intertwined in the storyline. What about you? I guess I'll say yes also, because I think there's a lot in there. I just want, I want her to publish like a revised edition where the last, the last part of the book is rewritten 
because it it has the potential to be like a perfect book. Yeah, it did feel like it was almost there, but it I think it was it was overall an enjoyable book. Time for shelf discovery. I picked a book that we read in season one, the very first book we read in season one, which was uh, The Namesake by Jim Lahiri. And I think I picked it because it, I felt like it was a similar immigrant story um, of the two parents moving to a new country and then it's about the kid and them growing up and difficulties that he's having. I think the namesake focuses a lot more on the one child, like how I kind of wish that Pachinko spent more time on Noah and Mozasu. But yeah. I picked Daughter of Fortune by Isabel Allende. Um, so this book is also historical fiction. It's set in the 1800s, though, in Chile. And it starts out with a girl. Eliza Summers, who was orphaned at birth, and she ends up being raised by a Victorian spinster in the British colony of Valparaiso. And then soon after the book starts, she meets and falls in love with her brother's clerk. And he gets swept away in this kind of craze for the gold rush, which is happening around that time. And he wants to go to San Francisco to seek his fortune. And from this setup, we kind of follow Eliza through her journey and search for this man and love. And then it kind of also turns into a personal adventure. She meets a lot of different characters. So I think that journey and kind of this one event sparking a whole series of other events reminded me of Pachinko. So I think if you liked Pachinko, you might like this book too. Nice. Well, our stop in Korea and Japan on our world tour is not yet over. We are going to be unpacking a little bit more next episode. I didn't even talk, like, I had so many notes about wealth and kind of, like, social position that we didn't really unpack, so there's going to be a lot to discuss. Yeah. And we have a surprise for everybody next episode. Um, if you'd like to know a little bit more about that, you can follow us on Instagram at thenovelty.pod. Otherwise, you're just going to have to wait until the next episode comes out to find out. All right. See you guys next episode. Thanks for listening to The Novelty. We are your hosts, Neha and Shruti, and our music is created by Apoorva Koti. We love to hear from you, so send us book recommendations, episode commentary, or even critical feedback. You can find us on Instagram at thenovelty.pod or email us at thenovelty.pod at gmail.com. Until next time, happy reading.